we know actually that most, I would say most of the doctors that you've come to know on terrestrial television, um, the sort of big names, all those names you could mention whether it's Channel 4 or the BBC, most of them at some point have taken money from a company and you will not know about it. And that, of course, includes me. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. Um, the BMJ takes conflicts of interest seriously. We ask all authors to declare any financial conflicts of interest they may have. Um, we do not publish education articles, so those intended to immediately affect practice from authors who have a direct conflict of interest in the topic about which they write. I'm Rebecca Coombs, Head of Journalism at the BMJ. It took us a while to really double down on conflicts of interest, or COIs as we call them, but it seems that many consumer publications and broadcasters are behind the curve. So to talk about conflicts of interest in TV doctors, we're joined by two of the most recognisable medics on our screens, Chris and Zahn von Tulliken. Hello. Hi. We're recognisable because there are two of us. <laughs> we look the same, so you get a double hit. <laughs> and uh, a woman who helped them to think about what they receive their cash for, Margaret McCartney. Well, I'm not sure about that. But no, then, that is true. <laughs> that Thank is you true. for having me. That is perhaps, true. perhaps we could just start about your sort of origin story in the media, how you came to sort of public consciousness, if you like. It was, it was a very slow burn from, as a very junior doctor, I did an expedition to the North Pole that was filmed by the BBC. And those were the days where if you, if you could sort of speak on camera and all kinds of exciting things happened to my little team, we got attacked by a polar bear. So we, we became a big part of this movie. And then the BBC had my phone number and they just started asking me, Chris, initially to do more and more. Uh, there was a, a big series that I did called Trust Me, I'm a Doctor. So you forget there was Trust Me, I'm a Doctor, which was sort of lifestyle medicine. But there was a, a gradual progression, progression as we became uh, more senior, but we were still very junior, we suddenly had a voice that was far louder than our expertise or experience. So by our early 30s, um, we were fronting television programs that were watched by millions of people. We'd been doctors for what, you know, six, seven years. Um, we'd spent some of that time um, doing research or, or doing humanitarian medicine. And, and you so, were both in clinical medicine as and well. And we were both working in the NHS. Well. Yeah. I suppose the, the, the difficult thing when people, lots of junior doctors, colleagues will say, how do I get into television? But the rise through any of this stuff is completely at the whims of a tiny number of people in telly. And it's totally bizarre. So when I was in America, I went to America. I had no profile on the telly. I had no desire to be on American television. And then we wrote an article in the Daily Mail about binge drinking no, it was about fat and salt and sugar. It was about fat and sugar. And it was twins, one twin ate fat, one twin ate sugar. And I got called on to CNN to talk about it. And I said, oh, I'm happy to do it. I'm across the road from CNN. I had an academic job in New York. And um, then they liked what I said. And then they brought me back to do a few other things. And then the Ebola crisis hit. And they knew that I did tropical medicine, infectious disease, public health. And that I had an American qualification. I'd studied public health there. And that was enough. And I was on CNN from six in the morning till midnight for two months, just permanently being paid very well. And Is that how you became the Ebola correspondent? So I was the CNN's Ebola correspondent on the strength of one Daily Mail article. And then, and I said to one of the producers, like, this is great work. How do I get more of it? Because it pays very well in America. And he said, I don't know. And I said, what can I do? Like, give me some feedback. How do I do it better? And he said, try shouting. 
I said, what do you mean? He goes, look at our avian, aviation correspondent. He's a he's an English guy. He said he just shouts the whole way through it. Richard Quest. He goes, shout like Quest. That's good. If people are flicking channels and they see someone shouting, <laughs> they'll stop on that channel. So I tried it. It didn't work for me. I wasn't. But that's like the weirdness of like, if you can be a shouty person in the right place at the right time, like that's enough. So I never know how. So it all feels. I mean, Chris can tell our story and you can tell multiple versions of it, but you never know why you're really on telly and, and maybe in a week's time neither one of us will be so you met margaret because margaret was um i solicited margaret margaret was presenting this show that i loved well, and i, I wasn't really presenting it. i've only ever been a kind of bit part player well, on inside yeah, health so i've never i've never been in charge of the can, i've never been in charge of it you know so i've only ever done bits and pieces for you, them for the bbc we can argue about this you set the kind of intellectual tone for that program well, and, you, like to, and you, like think you so created, I think I you created an atmosphere on that program that gave it such heft and legitimacy well, just by being really cross a lot of the time no that's by essentially being, what i do by having by having by having personal standards about ethics and evidence that, that that are really high and it was and that's what i really admired so i had the i had this sort of conflict because <clears throat> i wanted to do more stuff and i wanted to involve margaret in some of the projects that i was doing on television um so i also had to be sort of clean as a whistle the thing that you talk most about on television is generally diet and weight loss. And because you have this trusted voice and because actually you're not paid that much per day and you're you're compromising your medical career, the temptation is to start doing um, work for Right. Yeah, let's talk about the temptation because I think that's something that um, you know lots of us don't really <coughs> understand the kind of temptation faced by doctors. We established that you were in the public eye. What the temptation is when you're in the public eye. So if you're on radio or television, or maybe you have a column on a national newspaper, um, you know, are the chances that you will be approached by an agent or a corporate brand, and, and how does it work? Do you just get offered kind of profitable marketing gigs? What kind of things do you get offered? The first offer I got was I'd made a program about teeth and a, a dental company approached me to talk to some journalists for a day about a product they had. And I was very uneasy about doing it, so I said no. And the initial offer, I think, was £1,000 for the day. And as I kept saying no, the offer climbed to £5,000 for half an hour, and it was 10 minutes from where I worked. And at that point, I said Yes, because I, I'm not... contextualise what that meant to you, that money meant to you well, in was, your life was, at that time? I was young at the time, so that was two months' pay for half an hour's work for a thing that actually it was a product I thought was quite good. I mean, it was a product I did genuinely use. There was some evidence for. We talked about it in the programme. So, um, and most of all, it was going to be invisible. So I was going to be um, quoted in a few industry journals it would be invisible to all my colleagues someone like Margaret would never find out that I'd done this and in fact I would challenge in fact I think I have challenged you, you challenge have me. have you found out who paid it. me I couldn't find it couldn't find yeah. it so that's just 5k I got more than a decade ago now it meant a huge amount to me at the time it, it you know it it really got me off the hook for a lot of things and paid for a lot of stuff well, the first thing I did was World Pistachio Day. Really? Something like that. Maybe it was English Pistachio Day. Anyway, the pistachio people called our agent and said, would you, would you like to say something about pistachios? And I thought, well, I like pistachios. And I didn't, I gave it less thought than Chris. I just thought, well, pistachios are a perfectly good snack. They're better than almost any other snack. And it was just the pistachio sort of 
But it's the aggressive marketing by Big Pistachio that does well, so this much harm in the world. Big Pistachio. This is like the Pistachio marketing board. It's like said, a US company. So I did. It's, well, it's not a company. It's 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 all the pistachio farmers put money into this organisation that pushes pistachios as opposed to hazelnuts or whatever other product you might choose. And so, so somewhat I, like I suspect the Association of the British Pharmaceutical Industry or the Food and Drink Federation. Right, right, right. There are. Industry. I think loads of industries have got this. So there's a there's a there's a um. I won't talk about the parking. So your, your awards, agent anyway. offered you this gig. So they said, look, and it was something like I, I think it was four tweets and two radio appearances, and it was again, it was sort of five thousand pounds. It was something like that, and um, I thought, well, I don't see there's any conflict here, and I, do, I didn't even I, I I was I don't even think I thought about conflict. I just thought, well, it's easy, and my tweets were really dark. My tweets were like pistachios. I wrote them myself, and I was like pistachio. If you eat pistachios at the end of you got the shells, and they're really useful, you can might. Like, make a boat for ants I think was one of them it was like daft stuff it wasn't saying any, I made I don't think I made any medical claims so beyond saying this podcast into an ad into another I'm still ad. being paid yeah <laughs> but that was the first thing where I I thought and I felt fine at the end of the day or that is that true I felt maybe a little grubby like I I wouldn't have tweeted about them if I hadn't been paid so you then got approached by a by a, a company that was working for the NHS this is the main, this is where there was a very different, yes, so so at this point, God, it's quite hard to tell these stories, isn't it? Okay, so... Can so, I do it quickly? No, 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 because you're long-winded and waffly as well, you just like talking. Um, so, so, uh, so, so I got approached by a blood testing company who wanted to do sort of private blood testing. So the idea was they would advertise and they'd have me do it and I'd say, look, you, you know, to stay healthy, the campaign was 10 things you can do to stay healthy. And it was sort of have a cold shower, eat more vegetables, um, hug someone you love. Have a blood test. Like that was that was, was the sort campaign? of. Was it sort of bus shelters? It was on social. Radio? No, no. It was a. It was a. It was a small company, and and it wasn't huge. It was on. It was all on social media, and um, and I, there was no. There wasn't really anything else like it at the time, and what was interesting was, was that I had persuaded myself that this was actually good. And I, the case I would make, and I know I would make it because I made it in the Daily Mail in opposition i think to an article by daily mail got an article by me and an article by margaret am i remembering this right i think at some point yeah I think um, I and i sort of wrote in favor of private blood testing in the UK. i didn't know any of this no, 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 i'm really wincing i just have that um, type bum, and margaret like, sort oh of wrote God. but margaret's case against it is really complicated it's really hard to explain why screening for things isn't good and the case for it is like hey you could find out more about your body maybe you've got a disease you don't know about it feel safe and reassured with these blood tests but i the case I was trying to make was it's good for people to have control over their bodies and their information and things like this. And the case that Margaret was making is about Bayesian statistics and how when you go hunting for stuff, you find all sorts of false positives, false negatives. It's hard to explain that. Margaret is right. Yeah. I know she's, she's right. right. I, mean, I know she's right. Here, do you remember this? I, I kind of do. And I remember it with with kind of a queasy feeling in my stomach because the thing is that you're both inherently likable, lovely people. And I, it's it's very the banality it's, it's very, of evil, Margaret. No, 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 no. But it's very easy to have disagreements with people who are unlikable, you know. Mm. So it's very easy to be cross and angry and upset with people who are clearly doing sort of stuff that you disagree with, but who are like um, on a, a different on the other side. You know, they're they're also bad in other ways in their lives, or you know, like politics or something. You know, so it's actually it, feel, it makes me always feel really really queasy actually to 
come to a different conclusion about people that you like and you know your my conflict is that you want them to like you do you know what I mean so mm. that feels yeah. it, it doesn't feel you already nice. identifying this as a problem and you were talking about it and you were writing about it is that right yeah yeah I mean I've been writing uh, about this stuff to, forever and it's this... made no difference I would like so what what in the end happened was that I I took quite a lot of money I just bought a house. I had a child in another country. Everyone's like got a reason. No, but everyone's got a reason to, to 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 take money. You know, everyone can explain why they needed the money. I don't really need the money. And but this was a lot of money. Back and and it was a lot of money. There's your collection of racing horses, the yacht, <laughs> yeah, a private jet, my polo That's team, a, yeah. um, the helicopter. That <laughs> this doesn't, stuff doesn't pay for itself. <laughs> exactly. No, I mean it was, but it was enough money that it really did make a very big difference um, for, for for a period of time. It was and six figures. Can we say that? Yeah, but it was. It, yeah, yeah, it was about. I mean, I actually can't remember. It was about a hundred thousand pounds uh, for a small amount of work, but for a big reputational, you know, it was going to be a thing that I couldn't. It was going to be visible, and so I persuaded myself that it was good. And I had one friend who came to me and said, "You know, I took that test that you recommended, and my cholesterol was high." And he found all these things. He said, "I've sorted my life out. It was so good. Thanks so much for doing it." And I remember thinking, "Oh, great, maybe I am a good person," and and. <laughs> And thinking, and Margaret emailed Chris privately and said, you know, this is really bad that your brother's doing it. And no, Chris- no, that's not true. Margaret sent me a very nice DM and said, hey, what's your brother doing with this company? It was very, it was very gentle, actually. Um, you defended And me. I sent a very cross message to Margaret <laughs> yeah. going, I'm not my brother's keep." I was yeah, yeah. very angry at Margaret. But of course, I wasn't angry at Margaret. I was angry at you. Yes. Because I think we, anyway, you then immediately... The the really good thing was that because you had done the courageous thing of tackling your friend about this, oh, but it was your thing, brother. I should have like, <clears throat> but I don't think you followed me. No, but it. you know what? You did the right thing because, <laughs> how whatever the mechanics of it, you did the awkward thing that was hard, and it forced. I, I realized it was it was it was wrong, and so I went and said to Zand, "You've got to stop doing this," and Zand did stop doing it. I so. So what I, I suppose the thing I learned from it was you can persuade yourself of anything. If you know, if you're paid to have an opinion, you will have that opinion. And the reason that so many media doctors are so persuasive about things is because they genuinely believe it, because it's so uncomfortable to take the money if you don't believe in it. And you can make a case for having a blood test. You know, we do blood tests all the time. It's not right. And now the marketing of these blood tests is so sinister and so terrible that I feel really uncomfortable to have ever been involved with any of it. And I rem- and and so so that to me is the first thing is that the amounts of money are much more than you'd imagine and also that then when you listen to the media doctor talk about the thing they're being paid to talk about they will be persuasive and they will be likable because most people find it too uncomfortable to just lie to your face and say you should have this if they don't think they you should have it so they'll they'll talk themselves and for what you say you can almost persuade yourself that what you're doing isn't bad and well, you're having a blood test for cholesterol what could be wrong with that and to, and and what could be wrong with that i still think i would struggle to fully well i know i can't do the maths to pre- i know that margaret's right i know about the maths but actually all the pretest probability stuff is so hard to explain i would say the majority of practicing doctors in the uk would struggle to explain why the pretest probability is important but it sounds like you had a proper like damascene conversion and you decided to go cold turkey on so I, I'm very lucky that at the same time as Ma- Margaret's um, message to Chris really lodged in my head over many years. And the other thing is that Chris began to work on the way that companies affect the 
the medical profession, not even media doctors, but just how do medical opinions get shaped by big pharma, by milk companies and so on, to the point where I then went, oh, I can't do any of this at all. But I was very, and also, I don't need the money that much. Like, I'm very lucky. I don't have big financial problems. I don't have a huge family. I don't, you know, there are all sorts of things. But there are lots of people for whom this money makes a much bigger difference, um, who don't maybe come from a wealthy background. Perhaps they're supporting ill parents. There are loads of people. And Margaret's really good at not being breachy and understanding why the money matters. So for me and Chris, I think it's quite easy to say no. For lot doctors now are paid much less. You know, when we were junior doctors, we were paid a decent salary, you know, and, and so it was fairly easy, you know, it is fairly easy to say no when you're on a decent salary. Can I ask what might seem an obvious question, but why are doctors targeted by these big brands? What is it about doctors that has this sort of status? I think we've got a lot of evidence that we are the most, one of the most trusted professions, aren't we? Yeah, I think people really are a bit trust more us. trusted, I think. I think there's some of the so calls that ask nurses more. No, no, slightly more. I think if you ask what types of medical professionals and things like that, but yeah, yeah, no, it's, I think it is, it's trust, isn't We're it? We're trusted more than lawyers, more than journalists, more than politicians, more than, I mean, who, if you, and, and about health, we are the, with the last word in health. So, and there is a, if you come with a BBC stamp, like the three of us do, you're even more trusted. Yeah, is there a sort of certain type of profile of doctor that particularly gets targeted? So, uh, it's because it's so hard to know exactly who's doing what for whom, uh, what we can, I can only sort of talk about my own, well, that's not quite true. We do know actually because Margaret does a lot of work on this and because I've done a bit of work on it, we know actually that most, I would say most of the doctors that you've come to know on terrestrial television, um, the sort of big names, all those names you could mention, whether it's Channel 4 or the BBC, most of them at some point have taken money from a company and you will not know about it. And that, of course, includes me. I took money from this dental company. It includes Zand. I suspect it doesn't include Margaret. Um. And would doctors get, I mean, what do doctors, what products do doctors do you think get targeted? So, for example, well, uh, the big one is infant nutrition. So, because infant nutrition has been so hyper-medicalised, it's the relationships between the companies that make formula and baby food that are particularly insidious. And they develop these conflicts in a number of ways. They fund the basic research, they fund the charities that, face patients, they fund the advice helplines, they fund the national guidelines that guide the use of the medical foods, they fund the medical education in terms of the nurses, the doctors, the midwives being taught, and then they fund the media doctors. So if you go on the web, the corporate websites, which won't appear to be corporate, but they are owned by the companies, you will find these very familiar faces um, giving very, very bad advice on how to how to feed children and pushing you strongly toward um, using particular products. And almost everyone that advises in the media on child health and infant nutrition has these conflicts of interest. They're, they're paid, and they're paid extremely large life-saving sums of money because, and I know that because I get offered these things. So life because, changing. life-changing amounts of money. So I, I would say, um, because for several years, and I, I'm not overstating this, because of my relationship with Margaret, because of the, some of the work we did together, what I've come to see is that the biggest the, the biggest effect on human health is commercial determinants. It's the influence of marketing and inappropriate marketing, whether it's food or drugs or anything else. It's these conflicts that drive almost all of the problems. Um, and so 
because I now broadcast about this I, and um, and I don't have any conflicts, what the companies are constantly trying to do is create conflicts with me. So I get offered um, now routinely 20, 30,000 pounds to give an hour's talk. Very, very light stuff. It won't be money directly from the food industry. It will be through an intermediate body, a market, you know, an agency. Um, I've been offered to fly to Central America business class to give an hour's talk to a food company. Uh, quite a nice food company, a food company I buy products from, just to go and have a little chat with them about my book. Um, and would that be a public appearance? Would that be something? No, all in-house. It would be another one of these appearances that would be impossible for Margaret or anyone else to find out about without having access to my bank account. And even then, you wouldn't quite be able to prove that that £30,000. And I should say... Well, what's it, what's <clears> in it for the company then, if they're not able to... I think there are two things in it. Partly it's... profile against their product. Partly it's... it's, it's uh, what's it called a junket for, for everyone there we all go to central america and i'm one i'm the celebrity speaker and i've written this book and i i can say some interesting things i'm i'm an okay public speaker so that that's nice for them but at a larger level it means i am now an extension of their marketing division and th yeah there's a relationship it silences me and in this very subtle way that um i i, I mean this is just one example i've been offered tens of thousands like in the last let's say six months since the book came out I've been offered more than £100,000 to just go and talk for an hour here, an hour there to the to the, our big food producers and retailers. And I can go and I can speak truth to them and I can say, you're doing a terrible job and I can take that money and I can criticise them and no one will ever know. But by taking the money, I become open to the critique that I am now in their pay. And they know that and they can say it publicly. So it, it essentially buys your silence. You you would look, I would look like an absolute fool if I was writing about the problem of taking money from these companies whilst I myself was taking the money. So it would destroy all the work I do with the BMJ, with the Lancet, at the BBC that critiques conflicts of interest. So, yeah. Another interesting topic is, um, with, would the BBC then has no problem? Um, with the, if you were a media doctor who... Uh, was clearly taking money to promote products. Do you have to declare that to a public broadcaster like the BBC? Yeah, yes. So, so the BBC are very, very clear, particularly um, because we work on children's television as well. So, if you have a conflict of interest, the BBC say you cannot talk about the thing that you have the interest in. The mayor's office in London asked me to do uh, a thing to promote the defibrillators on the underground. Now, that seems to me to be. Uh, fairly conflict-free. It wasn't a brand of defibrillator. There's no alternative yeah. transport system in London. If you need the underground, there's no there's no other thing you can use. So it was just a bit of public health going, there are defibrillators, use them. It was a political pledge by the mayor. And so my, um, my exec for the show said, if you take the money from the mayor's office to do work, I mean, it's just doing public health work. He said, if you take that, you cannot talk about defibrillation and may not even be able to talk about cardiac arrest on the BBC. That's how careful they are about bias and political conflict. It sounds like the BBC is doing a better job than most. Much better. But there's better. still a weakness there, isn't there? Because you could still, at the same time, be taking money from pistachio growers. Yes. And be working for the BBC yes. and building your profile at the same time. Yes. And it's very, it was very there's easy. There's nowhere that a viewer could if, go and look at yeah. your, your conflicts. If either of us take money and do an advertisement that the public will see or send a tweet, that's quite easy to regulate because you can see it. But if you fly and give a corporate talk somewhere and there's a huge amount of this stuff that happens very quietly 
or if you're on a website that's a charity website just talking about a thing that's your expertise and you appear to just be an expert and that funding from a particular company is opaque the BBC have almost no way of policing that and we know that's true because Margaret and I know about a great number of people who have been historically employed on the BBC who we know have taken a large amount of money from lots of different mainly food companies um, and who continue to talk about that food on the BBC so it's it's very hard for the BBC to police it and the BBC don't have teeth Zand also has a contract with the BBC I'm a freelancer so I can sort of do what I want Quite often, the BBC are under pressure to do things quickly. Budgets have been massively cut. Um, you know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, fantastic expertise I think has been lost in the BBC and particularly in radio science over the last little while. Um, and I see in other parts of the BBC people giving opinions about stuff who I know they've got a, what I would regard as a conflict. Maybe they don't think they've got a conflict, but it's not made clear to me that there was a conflict at the time. There was a study I did, um, we published last year or maybe earlier this year, about um, people in the media giving recommendations about screening for atrial fibrillation. And we looked to see whether um, this hugely positive um, group of comments from people saying you should screen for atrial fibrillation, which is against the UK National Screening Committee guidance, um, whether they had a conflict of interest or not. And almost all of them did. Really? And almost all the time that wasn't explicitly made in what the media. And is that current, that's current affairs? But what? Who's paying them? Because like I had atrial fibrillation and yeah. I didn't. I should have been offered loads of money to promote have, yeah. this, and I, I didn't get offered a penny them, for yeah, any of it. And yeah, I don't yeah. know why I talked about my <laughs> atrial fibrillation <laughs> on all the time, and I didn't say we should be screening for it. Um, yeah. So it was um, mainly through um, academic health science networks. So f- a lot of tech and pharma companies funded them to go and screen the population for atrial fibrillation, even though that's not what the UK National Screening Committee say you should be doing. And um, that went on in a lot of... I mean, there was a, there was an amazing scheme um, somewhere that the, the network were paying firefighters to do fire safety checks in people's houses and screen them for atrial fibrillation while they were there in order to meet their targets but where do they make the money like this is so like every time I talk to Chris or you about conflicts of interest I'm like blown away by these the weirdness of it like Mm. how do you make money out of screening for atrial fibrillation is it the screening company well presumably what happens is you diagnose more and then you put more people on medication Okay. And you, you know, increase your number of people that prescribe something forever, presumably. Well, you can, hike up, or you can hike up an insurance premium. Yeah, uh, There are all kinds of ways of my, doing it. My, my cardi- but it's hard to figure out exactly who would make the money directly from paying someone to promote it. I mean, yeah. it, it, if, you, if, you're, if you've got AF, you're going to spend your, you know, the, many of the, uh, the DOA, you know, the, the DOACs, the anticoagulants you'll yeah. end up are still on patent uh, and everyone has to then go on them uh, and... Uh, you're never going to get off them. So well, you do a, your risk calculations and stuff, don't you? Sure, so but, you, but, you do all that, but it's certainly going to gonna, increase prescribing. Yeah, it's not yeah. going to decrease Wait, it. Uh, Margaret, I'm going to bring you back to the BBC and the change you think needs to happen. And not just the BBC, I mean all broadcasters. I mean um, radio, yeah. TV. What should the public be aware of that yeah. it currently isn't? And, and, and how can we make that happen without it being really clunky? I mean, how do you convey yeah. a doctor's... If there's a doctor sat on a sofa and, you know, on a morning breakfast show um how should we be made aware of their conflicts 
I think that you're, we are a bad judge of our own conflicts. So I would much rather say we talk about a declaration of interests and we say these are my interests and then somebody else can decide whether it's a conflict or not. Do you see what I mean? Oh, wow. So, and it's not like I'm trying to be holier than now. I'm not. There's lots of things I've done in my life that I regret for lots of different reasons. It's not. And I and I hate to be somebody that's being seen to be or thought of being as kind of like holding people to account in a kind of personal way. I think it's it's fine to do that as an organisational way, you know, to be saying mm. to, you know, the Royal College of GPs, I don't think you should be taking money from Gamble Aware, that kind of thing. It's a system problem rather than an individual problem. But I, I, I kind of think inherently it's a bad idea to think I am unconflicted because you probably are. And, we, you know, there's that great research study from many years ago saying that doctors who took drug company money or gifts or, or education felt that they were unconflicted but their colleagues were yeah. when they took the same stuff so I don't want to be a victim to that so I would much rather hold myself in a position of ambivalence when I'm thinking well I'm trying my best not to be conflicted but maybe I am you know I think it's so intriguing because I think the conclusion I, I, I love that perspective that we're bad judges of our own conflicts however I think the focus on financial conflicts is really important because we can never know ideological conflicts. And of course, you you have all kinds of commitments to the things you've previously said on the radio and in, in academic articles. We all do. And that stuff kind of is neutralised because all sides of any discussion have ideological conflicts. When you take money from an institution with an interest in causing the problem you are claiming to try and solve. That, to me, is the definition of the financial conflict. I'm just going to read out the bit from the GMC guidance on financial and commercial arrangements and conflicts of interest says, point 12b, you should avoid conflicts of interest wherever possible. And that to me would say all this financial conflicts of interest, well, it's a choice, isn't it? You know, if you're getting into a commercial agreement with a company, that's a choice. It is avoidable. So... You know, but it's not possible to, to it's not possible to send my kids to private school. Except it's the same example. I mean, we neither one of us has kids <laughs> in private school, but but that that thing of going well, it, it wasn't possible for me to fund my extravagant yeah. lifestyle and not take the money yeah. from the tobacco company yeah, is that yeah. I feel like that's the way yeah. out. Is they go well, it, what the definition of possibility yeah. is so vague. And Margaret, do you think this sort of ethical framework is defined by the GMC is sort of well understood? Well, it's so wafty. I mean, is it something that was going through your mind when you? Don and Chris when you're thinking about whether to take this money or not the key issue in the GMC is that the point 12a is you should use your professional judgement to identify when conflicts of interest arise that's just like that's crazed oh I love that I hadn't actually read that yeah yeah yeah. so it's kind of like you decide you decide and then you avoid whenever possible so you know to me it's just sort of say if you're working in commissioning of health services for say cardiovascular disease you should actively ensure that you're not being paid by any company that could profit from your decision making within this area do we need to be much more explicit and say actually you know Uh, incompatibility uh, would appear to be a possibility I mean, Margaret's been very illuminating for me in going, it's not enough to expose conflicts. You have to essentially eliminate them because what we know is that conflicts do, uh, uh, you know, uh, with any individual, you might be able to take the money from the Valve company and not use, not commission, uh, you know, or or, or buy different Valves, but you probably won't be. And we know it does have influence. So I, I think strong enforced regulation that limits conflicts Uh, financial conflicts is really, really important. Can we not attach a bit of kudos to doctors who've decided to make a choice in their career not to be conflicted? 
you know, to do what the GMC seems to be telling us to do, which is to try and minimise your conflicts of interest. I suppose there's that where possible, so isn't there? Doctors and, and their well, sort of sense of the ethics. Yeah, so, I mean, if you decide that you want to do media stuff, well, wouldn't it be better if you were, like, unconflicted, you know? So then make the broadcaster say, well, why have you asked for that doctor to come onto that show? You know, you because you've tried to find somebody that's unconflicted. You know, so make it a kind of viable career pathway where actually you might get more employment in the media through being unconflicted because that might be seen as a desirable thing to do. So what I'm sort of saying is I think it's a system problem that needs a system solution. Whereas asking people to, you know, what the declaration is, it's a bit embarrassing. Then asking people to give their declaration, well, how do I interpret that? You know, is it an issue? Is it not an issue? Would they have said that anyway? You're, you're, it's a much more fuzzy sort Do of you suspect thing. that most producers aren't asking these questions at the point of booking a guest? I think not. they're not <laughs> always doing it. I think many producers do try to do that. And I think, you know, what Xander's describing about a system is, is, you know, if that's working in television, that's great. I don't have the face for television. That's what I try to no, do. It, I'm stuck my radio coverage. But sorry, Margaret, no, keep no. going, sorry. No, 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 no. It's just, I just think it's, it's a bigger problem than an individual person you know it's an it's an overall problem so I think like young doctors are coming on board just now they're on Instagram they're kind of promoting stuff whatever I'm kind of thinking maybe we don't explain well enough at medical school what it means if you take on a conflict of interest should we be saying to people actually you might think that you're not conflicted but actually you know all the evidence would point in a completely different direction and true I'm sat here talking about broadcasting and actually there's the whole world of social media yeah, out there yeah. and, and that's that's a huge issue too isn't it yeah, that's yeah. still and Zahn, Zahn your work as a contracted sort of presenter and our work on say Operation Ouch, the kids show, it's quite different to being called in as an expert to speak on the sofa yeah. about any one of a number of things. And when I'm, I'm often asked to do that and no one ever asks who I take any money from. So, so at the BMJ, we try to do that. Um, and it's, we, we don't, we don't, we're not as Colgate-y as the education section perhaps, but we do try when interviewing people, A, we, it starts with selection. So, what we know about people and who we who we target in the first place for for quotes, um, but when we do speak to them, we do try and ask them what they if they have any conflicts of interest uh, in the in the subject that we're we're discussing with them that day, and and people can get very defensive, um, as but, if you're accusing them um, of, of of something um, yeah. when all you're doing is sort of doing your job and following yeah. process. I mean, even telling. The story about World Pistachio Day, which is twenty more than twenty years ago. It's not more I than twenty that, years ago. Can't possibly it is. I'm forty three. What's the what's well, the you were, what it happened when you were at medical school? Oh no. Well, maybe it's just about twenty years. What is it? Twenty four. Forty four. No. Hang on. Hang on. How many years? Don't well, worry, anyway, just, it's just, about two decades ago. Um, but you're even in that. You're sort of. Fat, I don't know. I mean, that's all a bit messy now. But 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 um, yeah. Has anyone, has anyone ever asked you about your conflicts in a media environment? And, and if they have, how did it make you feel? Well, no, only with the only the BBC sort of checking about if I bring a thing to them, they'll say, are you being paid to do this? Or what's your connection to this? If I say, look, I think it'd be great to talk about this thing on the morning show, they'll say, why do you think that? Who's brought this to you? Where are you getting this from? Um, and so in that sense, but that, and so that that's a conflict screening and a bias screening. But... How does that make you feel? Well, I like it because I really care about all this stuff now because of Chris and Margaret and and also more reflecting on it. But I have this luxurious position of being able to to reflect on it, you know. Um, and because I don't have any conflicts of interest now and I haven't had any for a long time, 
I feel much more comfortable to, but even now talking about the previous ones I had, you can, I don't know if you can feel like I feel very anxious talking about it and it makes me feel uncomfortable. And I can feel that Chris has a sort of, there's almost like a confessional bit in this recording where I'm sort of saying it and I feel like I don't really want people to know. And I feel like Chris is sort of making me say it so that he then is sort of a cleansing process. But it or sounds something. like you would recommend the comfort free life. It makes you sleep better at night. I, I think, I mean, we, we, between us, now. I don't know how much money we've turned down, but it's it's not, I mean, this sounds like such a sanctimonious thing to say. And it, of course, you're in a lucky position if you can turn down any, any money. But I mean, it's it's a lot of money. There is a, yeah, there's a peculiar thing though, where I think... I no one has ever ever asked me about conflicts in as an and I I've been on I go on current affairs I mean today program newsnight I write in the mail the guardian I've written in all the papers no one has ever ever said does anyone pay you ever and in fact I'm we never direct I think the BBC check in with our agents about some commercial conflicts um I'm really heartened that people do feel ashamed that, that, that whilst we do accept that these, you know, the bigwig professor with the relationships with the pharmaceutical industries, that carries a sort of heft. There is still a, th th there is still this kernel of yuckiness. And while Zand and I can brag about turning down money, and, and I, I suspect actually over the course of a 15 year career as, as broadcasters, the reason we've had a long career is because we don't have relationships where we sell anything. And if you look, actually, there are some, some media doctors who are huge on the BBC who started advertising things and they quite quickly fail, fade from public consciousness. Because I think somewhere deep down, the public and the medical profession do know that um, our decisions are changed. So I think I'm actually quite cheered by this idea that when you at the BMJ ask about conflicts, people, people are defensive. I think that's our our foot in the door to bring about the changes that Margaret wants. If people were just bragging about them and no one thought it was a problem, I think it's a reflection of some of the work you've done that people feel this discomfort. Do you think there are sort of two, there are two things that need to happen simultaneously? There's the kind of legislative regulatory stuff, which is quite detailed that Margaret's talking about. The other aspect is cultural change. And so my, my expertise is much more with the food industry than the farmer industry. But at the moment, when it comes to food policy and food charities, it's completely normal for doctors, activists, policy makers to have a very fluid relationship with companies. There's, a, there's some money, it's often a bit indirect, but it's all very cozy and everyone's close and there's a, there's a lot of financial conflict. And the first thing that needs to change before legislation is culture, that that needs to become, it needs to be seen as a bit shameful. And that's going to be really uncomfortable. So already I have had great discomfort calling out charities that I have worked with because they're taking money from big food companies. And these are good charities. Everyone's well-intentioned. They want to make things better. But what's really clear is they are an extension of the marketing arm of the companies. And that's what that's what these doctors will be. So I, I feel like you need those those two changes that and almost the, the legislation can only follow the cultural change because until there's a, a sort of a community of grassroots, whether it's the population voting for policy change or it's doctors who aren't taking money saying, look, we're taking a pay cut to not do this. And we we want to campaign for the GMC to bring in new regulations. 
uh, until there's a cultural change, it's, it's hard for the GMC or the government to have a mandate to bring around, bring about the regulatory change. Do you think, is that fair? My, my big concern is that I've been campaigning to have more transparency for the last like 20 years. And I actually think that I'm wrong because like you're saying, I, I think transparency can only take us so far. And what we could do is make our conflicts of interest much more transparent but not actually do anything about it because we I think agree. that transparency is management, whereas it's not. Yeah. Transparency is only a tiny little bit yeah. of management. You can't manage it until you know about them, but you can't stop there. So I kind of think that you can make things really transparent and have registers and you know we can do lots of consult- consultations about that. But unless you actually understand what that means and what action you should take because of that, you might just be making it a lot worse. In fact, you could really be making it a lot worse because I have been in touch with someone who told me that when um, Disclosure UK published the sums of money that he was receiving from pharma versus one of his colleagues he was really pissed off because he thought he should be getting more money for doing the work so it was like willy waving extraordinaire it was just amazing so actually it may have made it worse rather than better and what I'm really worried about is I've been campaigning for something with good intentions and with you know what I thought was you know good transparency how could you argue against it but actually not thinking it through to the other end what do you do with that transparency and unless you've got that in place whether it's through culture or legislation or un- guidance that people understand you might just make it worse I think that your, your point about culture Margaret is really interesting because there are very prominent scientists running companies that lots of people give money to um where everyone knows they're making money they're yeah. running a nutrition company or they're yeah. running a you know whatever the advice service or the, yeah. the thing that you see and um and you know they have a huge financial yeah. interest and yet they're on every podcast dispensing whatever kind of advice nutrition yeah. weight loss whatever the thing would be and people the conflict is is completely in the public eye in as much as the money is going directly from you if you start giving people money to give you advice and then they give you the advice that you'd ask it's like there's there's a closed loop so there's no there's total transparency and that seems to give people an air of almost glamour and excitement around them and i think sometimes particularly on social media when you start doing advertisements that has the cachet of going, you're an important enough person that some company has given you money and told you to promote their product. And actually the culture is that by doing the endorsements, by doing the ads, your followers will go, oh, this person's kind of cool enough and influential enough that a company's asked them to promote the thing. And at the very high end, if you're doing Mont Blanc or Breitling or Hermes or whatever, if you're doing a high end thing, that's a perfect partnership and it makes everyone look good. But even at the lower end, I think on Instagram, you can go, whoa, this person's got enough followers. Yeah. They're actually endorsing this cereal bar. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. And so there's a weird thing where if you're a media doctor, you get sucked into that because your colleagues are not other doctors in mm. the media. Your colleagues are, you know, in my case, my colleagues on the morning show are, are lovely people lots of them have commercial partnerships that seem appropriate mm. you know and they seem fine because they're not doctors they're not promoting health they're mm. saying look why don't you buy this stuff i endorse it and i'm clearly mm. getting paid but those are your colleagues so then there's almost a weird conversation you have to have where you go well i don't take any money for endorsing things and they feel judged and you have to go no no it's different you're so, a you're a you know you, you don't you're not a doctor so you can take the money but i am a doctor so i can't is that i mean how do yeah. you regulate but i mean i think the difference is between independent 
opinion, isn't it? And then opinion where someone and I don't think people with commercial interest should be banned from speaking about stuff because you know they'll have interesting things to say and expertise. But I think that we should be very clear that they will benefit yeah. from their intervention being used more. But that might not always be clear to the public. You know, I know you're saying it's really obvious, and I think sometimes it is really obvious, but sometimes it also isn't. You know, I was looking at um, a bit of other research that I'm doing, and I was looking at um, Instagram and stuff, and just looking at it's very glamorous. You know, it's very beautiful. You know, and um, and there is research from the states, like early research, that says that doctors who declare conflicts are generally seen as being good or better doctors because people look to them and think, well, they've got a conflict. So somebody thinks they're kind of worth the money. They're they're you know worth paying for their expertise. And if people have lots of conflicts, well, that's even better because lots of people regard them as an individual who's if so you, good. If you're consulting all the major yeah, pharma companies, you yeah, must be an expert. You're fantastic. You know, um, whereas we know that that's not the way it happens because, well, m- maybe maybe these people are fantastic, but sure. but very often it's a kind of domino effect. You know, people get involved and then they get more involved and more involved and more involved. But but um, I, I'm not sure that people do always realise that um, that that person actually does stand to gain from that and I think that has to come down to the journalism to ensure that that is absolutely apparent to the reader that the reason why we've asked for this voice and then that voice is because that voice is independent and this person stands to gain from this intervention being used more often and I'm not sure that that always comes across. I think think, Margaret you are changing culture where where part of the thing is is we need to be painting, I'm afraid, you do, I believe at some point you need to paint the individuals with a slightly shameful brush in, in order to change the structure, that you, you need to say, um, actually, these aren't legitimate voices, and when people hear people with conflicts, we need to understand that that's not going to be good advice. So I think once the public start understanding that, it, it starts to make it muckier, you don't think? I don't, I, I, I think I've not made any difference, a very little difference, but I think... Th- I don't know, a feeling of shame is not really, I don't know, the emotion that, you know, I would, I would like it to feel as though we could maybe move to a position where we feel as though, because like, everyone goes to medical school and they've got, you know, high ideals and they're enthusiastic and want to do stuff. And I think the living is just crushed out of you, I think, through medical school and then as a junior doctor. You know, it would be nice to get to a position where you could feel like really like happy, pride is a, maybe a sin, but, you know, proud of or like, satisfied with the decisions that you've been able to make mm. like you can't always make every decision mm. that you want to people are in different difficult positions you know money certainly can be a lot of you know a big issue but maybe there should be a kudos attached to not having conflict you know 100%. to being on you know that you're you're seen as being somebody that's reliable and good because of that you know on social media or on tv or whatever i think so i i agree with that and i but i also think you know we didn't pay to go to medical school our medical school was free so we left with no debt our parents were middle class. We didn't. We left with no debt from supporting ourselves as well. And now, if you're a doctor, you start with debt. Your salary's way lower. Your uh, career prospects for earning lots of money are way lower. Um, there's a sort of gloom around the NHS, and I can see how easily you'd go. Wait a minute. My senior colleagues live in houses, drive nice cars, have gardens, and send their kids to the schools they want to send them to. And they feel. I can imagine that you would feel. Um, I don't know, almost entitled to the money. And I would feel if, if a junior colleague came to me and said, look, I've been offered this money and I don't know, it's very easy for me to say, well, I didn't take it. Yeah. But they're in a, and that's doctors, that's not nurses or other healthcare providers or, you know, that's the best paid group of healthcare providers are still in a position now where I think the debt, the salary, the burdens, I mean, 
it's not a straightforward thing to get no, people to No, I, I agree. Up. And I think it's really important not to criticise individual people because you don't really know what people are going through. Although certainly yeah. if people are um, taking a lot of money to advertise stuff that is complete crap, then I'm so, <laughs> sorry, I will hold. Well, hold uh, it yeah, but, yeah. But, but, you know, I think I, I'm kind of really, in, I think in general, stuff that works in the NHS works on a system level rather than on an individual level so it's kind of taking the individual person and the choices that they have made under whatever circumstances out of that and saying as a system you know as a profession you know we tend to give better advice and do a better job when we're as little conflicted as possible can i ask one thing and this is a, a, a just a, a question but it is the most uncomfortable bit which is about my own conflicts of interest it, it feels the most uncomfortable thing is talking about the amounts of money and i think chris Chris does, Chris does feel this sort of um, embarrassment, and and so do I. And the amount of money is large enough that it doesn't. It's not a sympathetic. It's not like oh well, I was nice. It's like no, it was a lot of money. Um, I don't know. It doesn't. There's something about. It's difficult. It. I don't know. I suppose I'm. So can I just come back and say that the first thing I, I really congratulate you for your honesty. Like I think it's it's astounding and it's really impressive and it's good. And the the only difference between you and lots of other people is that you're saying it out loud. There's lots of other people out there in the medical profession who have done similar things, who have taken more money from more people, done all sorts of different stuff, but we will never know about it, like Chris is saying. So the difference with you is that you're saying it out loud. So I think that's to be admired, you know. And what we don't want is a situation where people then who are trying to do the right thing feel a sense of shame or embarrassment. That's not what we should be aiming for. We should aim for a situation where people have said, look, I made these decisions. These are the reasons why I've changed it. And actually, I'm going to kind of advocate for this different pathway because had I my time again, I would have made a different choice. And actually, I've continued to make a different choice. And that shouldn't be seen as being a bad thing. It should be seen, it's a bit like medical mistakes, medical errors. We always talk about a no blame culture. Like, I think that's what should, I mean, I've done I've made loads of medical errors, you know. And what helps me to do better is like put my hands up saying, I did this wrong and I'm going to try and do better the next time. And also, I'm going to try and make a system change so that somebody else doesn't make the same mistake that I did do you know what I mean like because otherwise we're just going to go around flagellating ourselves and that's kind of pointless do you know what I mean like there's no point in guilt shame driving stuff it doesn't help it just drives everything underground for the people who maybe out there have a commercial relationship with somebody feel uncomfortable about it and feel as though they're going to be embarrassed if they change their mind Okay, you've taught me around on that. I think I probably went into this thinking that shaming some of the very high-profile individuals is an important part of structural well, change. Well, there might and be. I think, <laughs> no, I think by the end of this, I'm left going, calling them out, but there's there's lots of ways of calling people out yeah. and saying, oh, look, we understand how this has happened and you're within you see, the rules. I've changed my mind. So, like, 20 yeah. years ago, I was very, very angry. And, and one of the things I was saying earlier about stuff that I regret, like, I do regret. I did go very hard on some people who I thought were making big, you know, saying things that I thought were not evidence-based and who had a conflict of interest. And I feel quite guilty now about how harsh I was on some people because I think that that didn't help the situation and it probably made it harder for them to change their mind. And perhaps had I gone more quietly and said, hope you don't mind me getting in touch. I've always respected or admired you on X, Y and Z and I'm just concerned about this. Um, Could we chat? or something you know maybe I'm trying I'm still not very diplomatic I'm still not very good at it I'm trying better but I think I've probably done better with that approach now than what I did 20 years ago when I was angry that's the approach you took with us and I really remember Chris forwarding your I think it was an email not a Twitter message but maybe it was but I think it was an email and and 
Chris sort of stuck, stuck up for me, which actually made it more I was in tears, Chris actually. Chris sort of said, oh, you <laughs> know, my brother's got a lot of integrity and stuff, and, and sort of, yeah. oh, I thought, well, I... I it's, it's complicated because I would... I also feel conscious that people will have... You know, there may be people listening who went, well, I saw your ad and I did the test and I thought it was real. Well, I believed in it. Yeah, I yeah. wasn't saying... I wasn't just taking exactly. the money to say anything. Yeah. I thought... And, and the people running that company were really really wanted to not be the blood testing company that 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 um that they were worried about becoming and but there was this moment where we all could tell ourselves this good story it was and i don't want to repeat the good story because it's not in the end it doesn't stack up it doesn't like you're right but we could tell this story that seemed okay and no one should feel like a mug at the time for believing it and I'd sort of taught myself into it. But but definitely, so your approach was very gentle and it had to be very gentle because it was so easy for me to just shut it down and it still took years for it to fully register in my brain. I love that this is like, this is... This is a there's a sort of therapeutic aspect to this conversation. I, I see it that... If you want massive structural change, especially against commercial forces, which are very well resourced, all kinds of different angles need to be taken. And we see this against the oil industry. That I strongly believe you have to stop traffic. I think you need very, very strong voices that have clarity. And then you need a middle ground that can sit around the table and do negotiations and have nuance. But without, without the absolute clarity, I mean, you always did it with great compassion, but you... You have had great clarity and you may not feel that you have um, brought about change, but you have, if you look at what you have spawned in terms of just the output that then I'm involved with, it's enormous. And I think there is, but it takes time because you're pushing, not, you're not just trying to do something that's right. You're pushing against commercial interests that are very significant. There's loads of people working, doing great, great stuff like this. I mean, there are, there are, there are. but I, I think we want to, have a position of, of sort of strength at the end of it you know and I think it just name and shame and blame and stuff like that it does have a role I'm not saying you should never do that but more just if you want lasting change what you really want is people to come onto your side isn't it you need to build alliances yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah this is a really nice kind and understanding note to finish on um, and I just want to say thank you to all three of you it's been a really fascinating discussion quite therapeutic as you said no it's Chris. really nice so, so we're, thanks we're to you, have a group Sam, now. Chris and Margaret <laughs> So we have a bit of a splash about the issues of competing interests this week. An investigation by Haristio Boitcheff has uncovered financial connections between the Royal Colleges and device manufacturers. And Margaret's article are both available online. Uh, we'll add the links to the show notes for you. So that's it for this episode, but we'll be back soon looking at the GMC's report into training and deep breath in, our podcast for GPs is all about how to say no. I'm Rebecca Coombs. Thanks for listening.